At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have back with me the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another Keyword episode. It's been a little while, so we thought it was time. We are going today to talk about some stuff to do with the eye. It won't cover the entire eye, but we'll do some important high-yield board stuff with the eye in terms of retrobulbar blocks and then the oculocardiac reflex, and we'll revisit more to do with the eye another day. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yes, so I started this, I was telling Dr. Wolpaw before we started recording that I started thinking I was just going to do all the eye stuff. I'm going to bang out all the eye stuff and it ended up being much more than I realized. And I guess it's probably because I don't do a lot of ophthalmic anesthesia anymore. And full disclosure, when I was a resident at Columbia, God bless Columbia, but I hated the eye Institute and Wilmer is not much better. (laughs) That's the eye Institute at Hopkins. It's not my favorite thing to do. But you have to know it, and it is important. And as Dr. Wilpaw said, these are two very high-yield subjects. Almost guaranteed you're going to get a question on this on either an ITE or a written exam. Um, I would say it probably falls under both the basic and the advanced. Advanced because it is a subspecialty, but basic because there is a fair amount of anatomy associated with these questions. Uh, So if you are interested, not that you are, if you went to the ASA website and you looked at the content outline, you'll find this on page 43. It's under clinical subspecialties, ophthalmic anesthesia, and the board wants you to know about retrobulbar and peribulbar blocks. I, and again, we'll do open eye injuries and intraocular pressure on another day, and then um, the ocular cardio reflex. So that's what we're going to go through today. So in terms of retrobulbar and peribulbar blocks, what is on the test? And just to reiterate, I go to this website called Open Anesthesia. I don't know how they know, but if you type in keywords, they'll tell you when they were tested. And it's based on the ITE. So they're testing hemodynamic effect that was tested in 2010 and 2013, risk factors that was tested in 2021, uh, complications that was tested in 20. 20, and then the difference between a retrobulbar and a peribulbar block. And that was tested in 2008, 2011, 2016, and 2019. So I just want to review quickly a retrobulbar block and then go through questions. So this is, again, for whoever wrote this in open anesthesia, I want to give them credit. (laughs) This is directly from the open anesthesia, which is a free open website where I got this information. So a retrobulbar block is frequently used for various ophthalmologic procedures, including surgeries of the cornea, anterior chamber, and lens. 
A local anesthetic is injected into the cone formed by the four rectus muscles of the eye, thereby providing akinesia and anesthesia to ocular and extraocular muscles, with the exception of the orbicularis oculi of the eyelid. The superior oblique muscle also has extraocular innervation and can be incompletely anesthetized with the block. So complications of this block include orbital perforation or ischemia, vascular injury causing retrobulbar hemorrhage, brainstem anesthesia, and activation of the oculocardiac reflex. Of those, hands down, the most common complication is the oculocardiac reflex, um, and we will cover that more in depth as the next topic. Okay, so these are the type of questions you're going to see, and again, super high yield, almost guaranteed you're going to see a question like this, or one of these, I think we have six or seven of them uh, on a test. Okay. So the first one is a 70-year-old man with stable angina is scheduled for cataract removal with a retrobulbar block. After injection of 5 ml of 0.75% bupivacaine, his heart rate decreases from 90 to 55 beats per minute, and he has frequent premature ventricular contractions on his EKG. These changes are most likely caused by. So one trick that I teach my residents who kind of struggle with standardized testing is before you look at the answer choices, cover them up and try to answer it in your head. Because if you actually know it, you're much more likely to answer it correctly. And it helps you not get distracted by the wrong answer choices. But these are the answer choices. A, intravascular injection of bupivacaine. B, subarachnoid injection of bupivacaine. C, myocardial ischemia. D, ocular cardiac reflex. E, retrobulbar hemorrhage. Right. And, you know, hopefully looking at this stem, like you said, if you don't even look at the answers, you think to yourself, all right, this is something being injected behind the eye, causing some pressure. The heart rate is the main thing that we're seeing here. Yes, there's some PVCs, but mainly we're seeing bradycardia. And hopefully that triggers in your mind the oculocardiac reflex, which I believe is the right answer here. Those other things would have different um, uh, sequelae if they occurred. Yeah. And I remember my very first day in peds when I was a resident in anesthesia, we were doing an eye room and this was the one thing it happened over and over. It's just so common. It's like a conversation back and forth. Okay. Heart rate's down. Stop what you're doing. But that is the ocular cardiac reflex. And so while the intravascular injection, the subarachnoid injection and the retrobulbar hemorrhage are all known complications, it's not what's going on here. And myocardial ischemia, they do give you that in the stem, but it's just not really likely after such a small procedure with a small amount of bupivacaine. So, okay. Next question. A patient has a seizure within seconds after receiving a retrobulbar injection of 0.5% bupivacaine with epinephrine 1 to 200,000. Which of the following is the most likely cause? So it's the answer choices are A, air embolism, B, ocular cardiac reflex, C, ophthalmic artery injection, D, retrobulbar hemorrhage, and E, subdural injection. Right. So, you know, I think looking through these, you got to think this something happened really quick, right? Within seconds of getting this injection and that something is a seizure. So oculocardiac reflex, like we just talked about, is going to cause bradycardia, not seizure. So we can, you know, kind of take that out of, of um, play here. A retrobulbar hemorrhage, while obviously uh, hemorrhage... Um, you know, uh, in the brain can cause a seizure. Uh, retrobulbar hemorrhage is probably a lot less likely to. And then you're, that leaves you with subdural injection, ophthalmic artery injection, or air embolism. And air embolism, of course, 
depending on um, where it goes, could cause a seizure, though that seems a little less likely in this with this mechanism. You'd have to inject, you know, essentially a air full, uh, a syringe full of air into uh, the artery and that they're actually telling you is bupivacaine with epinephrine. So seems unlikely that the whole syringe was actually air. And then that leaves you ophthalmic artery injection or subdural. And a subdural, of course, is going to be more likely to cause um other symptoms than just a seizure and might take a little longer than happening in a second. Whereas an ophthalmic artery injection, you think about putting that bupivacaine into an artery that's going directly, um, you know, into the brain. And that's going to obviously be likely to cause that. It's interesting to me that they didn't put the volume. I think that they do that on purpose because typically the volume isn't that big that it would cause local anesthetic toxicity, but they purposefully left that out to give themselves like a little wiggle room, I think. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, again, just thinking about like what would cause a seizure that quickly, uh, I would go with C, ophthalmic artery injection. And that's the answer. Okay. So our next question, a retrobulbar block for ophthalmologic surgery can be administered safely to patients with which of the following conditions, A, agitation, B, bleeding disorder, C, frequent coughing spasms, D, increased intraocular pressure, E, perforated globe. So hopefully this is one of those things that you don't actually need much in the way of anesthesia knowledge. You can just use kind of common sense, right? So if you're sticking a needle behind someone's eye and they cough, that'd be bad. You definitely don't want that. Someone who already has increased intraocular pressure, you're going to increase the pressure by putting some pressure behind the eye. That seems bad. A perforated globe, you don't want to stick anything in there. And a bleeding disorder, obviously, you don't want to cause a bleed, a retrobulbar bleed. So this really only leaves you with agitation, which, of course, you know, if someone is able to to um, hold still, even if they're agitated, you can do this. Yeah. Or give a little bit of propofol, which is what we typically do, because that's nicer. Because who really wants an eyeball, a needle behind their eyeball? Right. It's it's funny. I kind of laugh when Jed made a comment about common sense, because when I was in medical school, I remember one of the lecturers saying that me- medical students actually sometimes lack common sense because you're just trying so hard to remember so many things and just focus on the details. But the example they gave is on the USMLE, they actually had a question about if you had like a powder that was a poison on your skin, what should you do with it? And the answer was wipe it away. But like everyone was trying to make it way more complicated. (laughs) So sometimes it's really is truly like the common sense answer, but we try to make it more complicated. Totally. Yeah. Um, So just to uh, list the, I wrote the um, contraindications to a retropulbar or peripulbar block. It includes an age less than 15, which I don't know if that's a hard and fast rule. Again, I got this from open anesthesia. I think if you had a really mature 13 or 14 year old, like my 13 year old would probably sit for it, but there's kind of an age limit. You're not going to do it in pediatric patients. Procedures that last more than 90 to 120 minutes, obviously you don't want it wearing off. Uncontrolled cough or tremors, disorientation or mental impairment, excessive anxiety. I don't I guess, to the point where you couldn't sedate them safely, bleeding or chiropathies and a perforated globe. So those are the contraindications to these blocks. And occasionally they ask that. It's not as common of a question as some of the other ones, but you do see it from time to time. Uh, And then the next two, three questions actually are more anatomy questions. And I just want to point that out because, again, the basic, it's interesting because the basic, they say it doesn't include subspecialties, but it includes anatomy. And I find that the anatomy can be quite complex. And if you just think, oh, this is eye surgery, this is a subspecialty, people don't study for it. So I just want to point out that I think these next questions are fair fair in the anatomy category for the basic exam. 
So question four is a retro bulbar block anesthetizes each of the following nerves except A, ciliary nerves, B, cranial nerve three, which is ocular motor, C, cranial nerve five, which is the facial nerve, D, cranial nerve six, which is the abducens nerve. Is this yeah, tickling so up part of your brain that you, you haven't dealt with in a while? What is it on old Olympus towering top? Uh, we got to go back. Oh my gosh, cranial nerves. I know. Um, yeah, I mean, this is one of those things, just like for step one, where you know you really just have to memorize these things. Of course, um, yeah. It it is, uh, you know, you if I had to guess here, I would say the facial nerve. We know the facial nerve has multiple branches that go to the face, and so it doesn't really make sense that a retrobulbar block would anesthetize the entire facial nerve. It might get part of it, it might not, but you know, certainly something called the oculomotor nerve seems like that's probably going to be important here. The ciliary nerve seems like that's going to be important here and probably would be would be hit. The one I think you wouldn't be sure of is cranial nerve six, the abducens nerve. Now, you know, if you knew that had to do with movement of the eye, then you might know that. But um, I still think even if you didn't know anything, except that the facial nerve has pretty wide um, innervation of the face, you would probably go with that one. And I think that's going to be the right answer here is that the retrobulbar block does not get the facial nerve. That is correct. And so, so a retrobulbar block, it anesthetizes the three cranial nerves responsible for movement of the eye. And I will tell you that there's no way that I remember this. <laughs> I definitely had to look it up. But the three cranial nerves responsible for movement of the eye are three, which is ocular motor, uh, four, which is trochlear, and then six, which is abducens. The ciliary ganglion, which are deep within the orbit and lateral to the optic nerve, and ciliary nerves are also blocked, so it provides anesthesia to the conjunctiva, cornea, and uvea. Branches of the facial nerve are not blocked by the retrobulbar block, but are often separately blocked to produce akinesis of the eyelids. So I think that's really what they want you to know, is that if you don't block the facial nerve, then eyelids can move, and if you're doing eye surgery, that's probably suboptimal. <laughs> so sometimes they'll do a separate facial nerve block so you don't get that eyelid movement. Okay, so very similar question, just kind of reiterating what we just did and trying to ingrain that in your head. Is that the right word? Entrench that in your head. All these nerves can be disrupted by injection of local anesthetics into the retrobulbar space, except A, optic nerve, B, ocular motor nerve, C, trochlear nerve, D, abducens nerve. Yeah, you know, and I think this is tricky. Um, I think it has to do with um, what... Uh, nerves remembering the, the cranial nerves <laughs> right well you got to remember that um, and then you got to remember where they are right? right because some of these are within that um, optic cone and some are yes, not right and so you know i think that um, clearly the optic nerve is there the oculomotor nerve um, is there and again I, I think i would probably come down to trochlear versus abducens i think you know just reaching back and uh, i would probably go with trochlear as, as being located somewhere else though it does have some innervation of the eye um uh, but again, that would be a little bit of a guess uh, on my part. Yeah. So once again, so this is, it's basically the same question, but instead of giving you the cranial nerve number, it actually tells you what the nerves are. So the nerves blocked that are within the optic cone are optic two, ocular motor three, and then abducens six. So two, three, and six. So the trochlear nerve, which is four, is not affected. Again, I never would have remembered this on my own if I hadn't been going through this again <laughs> for this podcast. And actually, I, I think I mistakenly just said that the trochlear nerve may have some uh, some involvement in movement of the eye, and, and that's wrong. I was thinking actually of six, um, Roman numeral VI, not Roman numeral IV. Oh, VI, VI, yeah. So trochlear is not. Yeah, I think that's probably more here, right? Yeah, trochlear is not, exactly. So I think that's just not involved at all, and that's why it's the answer here. 
And this one, this next question I think is trickier because it's, you have to kind of think through a few steps. So the eye movement that is preserved or unaffected following a retro block with 0.5% bupivacaine is A, abduction, A, B, duction, B, rotation, C, adduction, which is A, D, duction, D, elevation. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is again, you're gonna have to know what nerves do what muscles right. that do what kind of what kind of movement. So um, I'm gonna have to admit, I don't know the answer to this one, You'd, I'd probably have to look it up to see what what, what innervates what, what we know is that the trochlear nerve remains intact. And even though we just said that the trochlear nerve cranial nerve four um, is not affected, it may not have any play, I think it probably has some muscle innervation around the eye. Um, though it's not blocked by the uh, retrobulbar block. And so whatever whatever movement that causes is probably the answer. Maybe rotation, but I would have to, I, I wouldn't know that off the top of my head. Yeah, so it is. So it's the trochlear nerve remains intact and that innervates the superior oblique muscle and that is what causes rotation. So it's like a kind of a multi-step question in your head. So the answer is B, rotation. Um, but in my little blurb up front when I was talking about the retrobulbar block, I did say that the superior oblique muscle has extraocular innervation and can be incompletely anesthetized with the block. And so that was really what the question was testing. And yep. that one does rotation. So not an easy question at all. No, that's a tough but one. Still floating around out there. Okay. Uh, the next question is possible complications of a retrobulbar block include the following, except a central retinary artery occlusion, B, ocular cardiac reflex, C, puncture of the globe, D, Horner syndrome. Yeah, so I think this one you should be able to get, right? So, you know, ocular cardiac reflex, we've talked about a lot. That's clearly a possible complication. Puncture of the globe, you're sticking a needle near the globe, right? It should be pretty straightforward that that's a possible complication. Central retina, retinal artery occlusion and Horner syndrome are what you're going to come down to. Um, and, you know, you're not really blocking the sympathetic chain behind the eye. So hopefully, you know, you realize that's located somewhere else. Horner syndrome is is really unlikely here. Um, I don't know that I can explain how, other than maybe with a hemorrhage, um, it's going to cause central retina, retinal artery occlusion. Um, and maybe that's what they're getting at, is that if you cause a retrobulbar hemorrhage, you could obviously occlude the artery that way. Yeah, and I thought this was really hard because I I, I knew the answer was Horner because I, I just have read enough about complications of retrobulbar blocks to know that it's not Horner's. But I thought the central retinal artery occlusion was really hard. And the explanation that this test question writer gave was that a retrobulbar hemorrhage can actually potentially cause central artery occlusion. Is it a fair question? Eh. <laughs> but you can learn something from it. And that's the point of this. Okay. So the last question in the retrobulbar block category, a patient is given propofol 20 milligrams just before placement of a retrobulbar block with 3 ml of 0.5% bupivacaine to provide ocular akinesia for ocular surgery. Moments later, apnea occurs, followed by complete loss of consciousness. The most likely etiology to explain this event is A, subarachnoid injection of local anesthetic, B, effects of propofol, C, ocular cardio reflex, D, intravenous injection of local anesthetic. Yeah, this is an interesting question, right? So I think um, tw 20 milligrams of propofol should not cause total apnea and loss of consciousness, at least in an adult. I, I guess they don't tell us what age or weight this patient is. If it were a preemie baby, little, you know, one kilo, then maybe, but we got to assume this is an adult. 
But and remember, we learned that one of the contraindications is yeah. yeah. So right. it's probably yeah. someone who's 15 or older. Yes. Let's assume it's an adult. Um, and so 20 milligrams of propofol, highly unlikely to do this. The oculocardiac reflex, we already said, primarily is going to be bradycardia, not unconsciousness and apnea. So that's out. Um, intravenous injection, we saw in a previous question, more likely to cause, well, we looked at intraarterial, but um, even intravenous injection, probably more likely if it's enough, um, though this may not be enough, but to cause a seizure, um, certainly no reason that it would cause apnea and um, and uh, loss of consciousness immediately. So really what we're left with is subarachnoid injection, and that does fit, right? Essentially, this would be a super high spinal or an intracranial spinal, which right. is going <laughs> to knock out your, your uh, respiratory centers and your um, ability to be awake. Right. And it is a, a known complication, a rare but known complication. And so when I prepare for these podcasts, I, I look through huge numbers of questions. I look through there have there have been seven or eight years worth of released ITE questions that I look through. Uh, I look through a lot of the ACE questions that have been released. I look through some of my MOCA stuff, question books, and this question comes up over and over. So really common. They just want you to know, because that's probably the most life-threatening thing that can happen from a retrobulbar block. And how do you, I know this isn't a multiple choice question, but how would you treat that? Stay with us. We'll be right back with the answer to that question. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And Dr. Isaac was asking me how I would handle that situation if it were to happen to a patient of mine, and it's just supportive care. You just want to support them until it wears off. Usually, you're going to intubate them. In theory, you could just mask them through it and support them until the spinal wears off. Okay, so I'm just going to say that according to open anesthesia, the ASA has been asking about retrobulbar versus peribulbar blocks, and they've asked it four times in the last like 15 years. I could not find a single question about peribulbar blocks. I couldn't. But I do think it's important to know this topic because clearly they are asking about it and they just haven't released those questions yet. So I just wanted to talk through a peribulbar block and I apologize. I, I looked through probably a thousand questions and couldn't find a single one about a peribulbar block. But So a peribulbar block involves injections above and below the orbit with local anesthetic deposit, deposited in the orbicularis oculi muscle. This technique blocks the ciliary nerves as well as the cranial nerves three and six, like we wanted, but does not block the optic nerve, which is two. There is less potential for interocular or intradural injection since the local anesthetic is deposited outside the muscle cone. So I think that's probably what they're asking when they're, it's the comparison between the two and the peribulbar block is the safer block because you have less risk for those um, 
complications. So if I had a, if I was writing a question, that's probably what it would be about. But the block is also technically easier to place, and the risk of hemorrhage within the muscle cone and direct injury to the optic nerve is decreased. It's more difficult to get a complete dense block with the peribulbar technique, and that's probably the second question they would ask: is like, why would you favor a retrobulbar to a peribulbar? It's because a retrobulbar is a more complete and a denser block. It's probably kind of like a spinal versus an epidural, right? <laughs> like an epidural would get the job done, but a spinal is better in terms of a block, um, but it's still widely used given its lower complication rate. Complications include spread of local to the contralateral eye, periorbital ecchymoses, and transient blindness. So again, I'm very sorry I couldn't find multiple choice questions, but to compare the two, the peribulbar block is the safer block. You have less complications, but it's not as good of a block, and that's probably what they're asking. Yeah. Sounds the best right. I could do, guys. Sorry. No <laughs> I tried. Looking. I mean, I yeah. know they're testing it. I just can't find, you know, there, there is a lag, right, between the current literature and like what we, what gets released and what we can see. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be interesting when they do release those questions, probably in the next year or two. Uh, so the next uh, topic then is the ocular cardiac reflex. And again, this is just asked over and over. So like generally it was asked in 2017 and 2021, the anatomy was asked in 2016 and 2018. And then the afferent path, which in my head is still anatomy, but they parsed that out was 08, 09, 2011 and 2014. So the ocular cardiac reflex, it actually, we've known about it for a long time. It was first described in 1908. Uh, it's also known as the Ashner reflex or the trigeminovagal reflex. I like that better. We talk about vasovagal. I think we should say trigeminovagal. Um, but it's a reduction of the heart rate resulting from direct pressure placed on the extraocular muscles, the globe or conjunctiva. The reflex is defined by a decrease in heart rate greater than 20% um, following the exertion of what we just talked about, eye pressure. Uh, the reflex is most prominent and concerning in pediatric patients who rely more heavily on maintenance of heart rate to preserve their cardiac output, which is probably why they talk about it in peds so much. The reflex is mediated by the connection between the ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve and the vagus nerve. Most commonly, the reflex induces bradycardia, though it has been reported to cause arrhythmia and extreme cases cardiac arrest. So like that question we saw before where he had some PVCs, you can see that too. The reflex has most often been encountered during ophthalmologic procedures such as strabismus surgery, though it has also been seen in cases of facial trauma, regional anesthetic nerve blocks, and mechanical stimulation. And I just want to point out, this is another question they ask, is it can still happen in an enucleated eye? So without an eyeball. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying no eyeball. So even if you don't have an eyeball, you can still cause this. So the ocular cardiac reflex arc is comprised of an afferent limb, which is carried by the trigeminal nerve, and an efferent limb, which is carried out by the vagus nerve. The reflex begins with the activation of the stretch receptors in periorbital and ocular tissues. The long and short ciliary nerves carry the impulses to the ciliary ganglion, where the ophthalmic division of cranial nerve 5 carries the impulse to the gessarian ganglion and subsequently to the trigeminal nucleus. The afferent nerve synapse with the visceral motor nucleus of the vagus nerve and the reticular formation of the brainstem, where the impulses are carried to the myocardium to activate the vagal motor response at the SA node, resulting in bradycardia. I don't think you need to know it that in-depth. I just wanted to review it because occasionally you see these like really in-depth anatomy questions about that reflex arc. Um, I think if you just know trigeminal vagus, you're in a good spot. <laughs> but I have seen them asked about the ganglions uh, in the past. Okay, so here are some questions about the ocular cardiac reflex. 
A five-year-old child undergoing strabismus surgery under general anesthesia suddenly develops sinus bradycardia and intermittent ventricular escape beats, but is hemodynamically stable. Which therapy is appropriate for treating this arrhythmia? A, tell the surgeon to stop pulling on the eye muscle. B, tell the surgeon to do a retrobulbar block. C, change from halothane to sevoflurane. I guess change from isoflurane to sevoflurane. D, decrease the depth of the volatile anesthetic. E, administer atropine. Right. So this is one of those wipe, wipe the poison off the skin, right? This is just <laughs> yeah, wipe the poison off the skin. Yeah, exactly. Tell the surgeon to stop pulling on the eye muscle. Hopefully that you should know is the first step before you're going to give atropine or before you're going to, you know, do anything else. So they're, they're making sure you know what this is. So it's not a, a problem with your anesthetic. It's not um, a problem with depth of anesthesia. It's the surgeon pulling on the eye muscle, or at least that's what you should assume it is. Try telling them to stop. If that doesn't work, then you move on to other things. Yeah. So tell them to stop. Exactly. So the next question here is a, it's a very similar five-year-old child undergoing strabismus correction during spontaneous ventilation. And we're going to use halothane. Why not? 1.5% nitrous oxide and oxygen, 50%. Uh, intravenous atropine 0.2 milligram is administered after inhalation induction. And this is just an aside that actually is from what I remember doing peds anesthesia in the eye surgery side of things is not an uncommon um, tactic to just try to prevent it, giving atropine up front. But 10 minutes after incision, heart rate decreases from 110 to 40 beats per minute. Which of the following is the most likely cause? A, administration of phenylephrine eye drops. B, inadvertent external pressure on the carotid sinus. C, paradoxical response to a small dose of atropine. D, sinoatrial nodal depression by halothane. E, traction on an extraocular muscle. And I think what they're getting at here is that even if you've pretreated with atropine, it can still happen. It's a pretty powerful reflex. And so the answer is going to be E, traction on an extraocular muscle. And they want you to realize that that's still possible even after the atropine. Okay, so our next question, which statement regarding an ocular cardiac reflex is true? A, it does not occur in enucleated patients. B, incidence is increased in the setting of hypercarbia. C, intensity increases with repeated stimulation. D, it is suppressed by general anesthesia. Yeah, so interesting. We know from what you just told us, Jillian, that it is possible in an enucleated patient, so we can cross that one off. Um it, I think, tends to actually re, um, fatigue over time, not increase in intensity. So we can get rid of C, um, which was intensity increases with repeated stimulation. Um, it, we, you know, if it were suppressed by general anesthesia, then we wouldn't really see it under general anesthesia. And we, of course, do. So we really can get rid of that, too. And that really leaves the incidences increased in the setting of hypercarbia. Um, and so that's probably going to be the right answer here. Right. So hypercarbia and hypoxemia are actually believed to augment the incidence and severity of the reflex. So you just want to make sure like every patient, right, you want them properly ventilated and oxygenated. All right. Our next question here is an anatomy question. All of the following anatomic structures may participate in triggering an acute and abrupt bradycardia during ophthalmic surgery, except so A, the trigeminal nerve, B, the vagus nerve, C, the globe, D, the optic nerve. Great. So you went over in that detailed description of kind of the afferent and efferent part of this reflex um, that the trigeminal nerve, the vagus nerve, and the globe itself are involved, but the optic nerve is not. So D would be the answer. Here. Correct. So our next question, also anatomy-based, and I keep saying anatomy because I just want to reinforce that means basic and not just advanced. So midway through a cervismus repair surgery, when surgical traction in the operative field is applied, the patient's heart rate plummets from 110 to 55. 
the pairing that accurately reflects the afferent and efferent limbs respectively of this reflex are A, trigeminal nerve vagus nerve, B, optic nerve vagus nerve, C, vagus nerve trigeminal nerve, D, trochlear nerve optic nerve. Great. And, you know, if you remember from what you went through, um, Jillian, then you're going to know it's trigeminal and vagus. But even if you didn't, you should be able to say, I know vagus has to be the outgoing um, limb, right? Because it's going to cause that bradycardia. So you should be able to eliminate C and D just by the fact that they don't have vagus as the outgoing, um, uh, the efferent limb. So that leaves you either no, trying to figure out whether it's the trigeminal or the optic nerve. Um, and again, you just have to know that the trigeminal nerve is is the afferent limb. Right. So this is basically, it's funny, I found these questions in different sources, but it's basically the same question just with different answer choices. So it's midway through business repair surgery when surgical traction in the operative field is applied, the patient's heart rate plummets from 110 to 55. The most appropriate first step in management of this hemodynamic stability is A, epinephrine, B, atropine, C, remove traction, D, phenylephrine. Great. And so like we talked about before, this is the first thing you want to do, tell the surgeon to stop the traction and make and see if that works. Yep, exactly. Um, so again, I think these keywords are incredibly high yield. These questions come up year after year. Uh, I think the anatomy is really important for basic exam, and then complications is probably the second tested uh, question in this uh, keyword series. Great. Um, well, Jillian, thank you again for coming on. Let's go to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Um, you always have great ones. Do you have something you'd recommend that people check out? Okay. So everyone probably knows that I am a little bit obsessed with what I call football, which Americans call soccer. <laughs> I call American football, American football. But do you, have you heard of the show? Welcome to Wrexham? Nope. Okay. Do you know who Ryan Reynolds is, the actor? Yeah, the actor, I do know. Yes, yeah. so Deadpool, right. Him, and then there's another actor named Rob McElhenney, who is on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I've actually never seen the show. But the two of them, I don't know how they came together and decided to buy a football club in Wales, England. And the way the English system is set up is that you play in a certain league, and if you're in the top, you move up. So that's getting promoted. But if you're in the bottom, you get relegated and you move down. And this football club is like the second oldest football club in the world. And they had been playing at the second division in British football, but they lost like money and funding and just had hard times and just kept dropping and dropping. And now they're playing in the fifth division. And so Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, these two Americans who know absolutely nothing about soccer, buy this club, and they're trying to figure out a way to make them like a really strong team and get them promoted again. And it's a documentary about what they're doing. And it's just a fantastic view of like an American learning all about soccer for the first time. And I mean, one of my favorite parts is Ryan Reynolds is talking about they're playing an away game and Wrexham. I forget where they're going, but it's like a four hour drive. And he's like, it's so part of the culture that they're like half the town is going to get on buses and they're going to drive four hours on like a random Tuesday night to, you know, watch a game for two hours to go home the next four hours to sleep for three hours to get their jobs the next day. And that's like how much football means to like people in England and Wales. But it's it's funny and it's it's interesting. And I think it's a great introduction to any American who's interested about soccer. It's almost like the real life Ted Lasso. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, I am going to recommend a great book that I just finished that was recommended to me actually by one of our applicants to our program. Um, I did not ask 
for permission, so I will not use their name, but um, it was a great recommendation. The um, the book is called Project Hail Mary. It's by Andy Ware, who wrote the the book The Martian, that the movie um, The Martian with um, uh, with Matt Damon was based off. Um, and this book is fantastic. It's science fiction, but with, it's it's uh, just incredibly full of real um, interesting physics. And uh, it's, you know, not like totally wacko out there. It's it's kind of, you know, somewhat believable and really well written. It kept I just couldn't put it down. So Project Hail Mary by Andy Ware. Check it out. I'll bring this to you tomorrow. But if you like that book, he also wrote Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. Have you read it? It's about I a moon colony. It. Is it good? It's so good. It's so believable in terms of like, how would you actually colonize the moon? Like, what are the pitfalls? Like not really having sunlight, where people live, how do you eat food? What do you do with oxygen? It's it's really well written. I'll bring it in for you tomorrow. It's another nice. one of his books. It's fantastic. Thanks, Jillian. Really appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious 
this extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 